If you have Bibles, um, make your way to the book of Joshua this morning. The book of Joshua. If you're using uh, one of the black hardcover Bibles that Rachel mentioned just a moment ago, uh, page 178 is where you will find the book of Joshua in those Bibles. And if you were here with us, you know that last week we kind of jumped the Advent gun. Today is actually the official start of, of Advent, uh, the first Sunday in Advent. We actually kicked off our Advent sermon series last week, uh, and we did that so that we would have enough time to look at each of the five mothers of Jesus. And when I say five mothers of Jesus, if that prompts something in you, you're like, how does Jesus have five mothers? Let me explain that a little bit. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, we find the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And among all of the names that are there in Matthew chapter 1, there are the names of five women. And as we began to see last week, uh, these women, most of them, were racial outsiders. They were non-Israelites. All of them were moral outsiders. Their lives, as we'll hear, are full of scandal, are full of sin. And as women, just that simple fact that they were women meant that they were gender outsiders, Women were rarely, if ever, included in genealogies in the first century. And yet, here are these five women that show up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Advent, and this is what we started looking at last week and we'll continue to look at throughout these next few weeks. Advent is a a beautiful picture of the outside entering in. And on a couple fronts, first and foremost, Advent is this beautiful picture. It's a celebration of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, entering in, leaving the glories of heaven, entering in to the brokenness of this earth to rescue us from it. But Advent is also a picture of outsiders like these five women entering into the kingdom of God, entering into God's story, and not only entering into it, but playing a major role in it. And what we see in the lives of these mothers of Jesus, hopefully in turn then what we see in our own lives, is that because Jesus has entered in from the outside, we who would otherwise forever be outsiders ourselves, we too can enter into the kingdom of God. And we can become part of the work of God as he reconciles the world to himself. So last week we looked at the first of the mothers of Jesus, that is Tamar. This week we're going to look at the second one. Her name is Rahab. And we begin to read about her life in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. So follow along with me as I read. Uh, I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, Men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho said to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof, to them on the roof, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, 
and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to, the, to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. And shape our wills that we may desire your ways. And we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So here's what we learn uh, through the life and the story of Rahab. That when the outside enters in, it enters in with these three things. A challenge to your allegiance, a call to courageous faith, and the chance to become a delivered deliverer. A challenge to your allegiance, a call to courageous faith, and the chance to become a delivered deliverer. So first, let's talk about how it, when the outside enters in, it comes with a challenge to your allegiance. The scene here in, in Joshua chapter 2 begins uh, with Joshua and all the Israelites, the Israelite army, on the shores of the Jordan River. They're preparing to cross into the land that God promised to give them and, and really made that initial promise to Abraham generations before. In chapter 1 of Joshua, God has reaffirmed that promise uh, to Israel and specifically to Israel's new leader whose name is Joshua. The city of Jericho 
is going to be the first city that the Israelites encounter in their path as they enter into the promised land. And so Joshua sends these two spies to investigate the city and what they're going to encounter there. The spies come to this house of a woman named Rahab. She's a Canaanite woman. She's a resident of the city of Jericho. And as it says there in the text, she makes her living through prostitution. Her home also appears to be something like a tavern or a hostel, somewhere where where travelers could stay the night and lodge. And though this first verse might seem a little shady, like the two spies go immediately to a prostitute's house, what are they doing there? It sounds shady, but the language here, the language the author uses makes it clear, the spies are not there to enlist Rahab's, shall we say, professional services. She's not there, they're not there for that. It seems that her house is a type of tavern where, of course, the, the vices of society would be present, but also it would be a great place for people to gather, uh, for people to talk, where spies could come and get a little bit of a feel for who these people are in the city in which they live. As the story progresses, though, we learn something really important, that though these spies are apparently the, the first Israelites in this generation to be in the city of Jericho, and though there appear to be no worshipers of God in the city of Jericho, the people of Jericho already know something of God. They already know. Did you hear that? Verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. So back up. This is actually was prophesied a generation earlier. In Exodus chapter 15, uh, after God delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians at the Red Sea, they sing this song of, of victory and celebration. It's known as the Song of Moses. And in the Song of Moses, they prophesy that because of God's salvation, the fear of God will now melt the hearts of the inhabitants of the promised land. People will fear them before they even encounter them. So fast forward here now about 40 years, and that's exactly what's coming to pass in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab and the residents of Jericho, they've heard of this God and what he's done. And as verse 11 says, it's melted their hearts with fear. So God has already begun to make himself known in Jericho. And that's a really important reminder for us that God is always at work in a place before we arrive there. Before you and I ever arrive in some particular place, God is already at work there. So though we carry great responsibility great opportunity to, as we like to say at Liberty, live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus. God is always going before us. He is always accomplishing his purposes. It's always our role to try to perceive where God is at work and then join him in that work. And as God reveals himself to Rahab and to the people of Jericho, that revelation comes with a challenge to their allegiance. And it always does. It always does. In other words, now, in light of what you now know about God and his work in the world, to whom will you swear allegiance? Put yourself for just a moment in, in Rahab's shoes. Whenever this news uh, about God first arrives in Jericho, we don't know how that happened, but it arrives in Jericho sometime before this, that's when this challenge to her allegiance really begins. And she's wrestling with that question, should she continue on as if, as if nothing in her life has changed, or should now knowing that alter her understanding of the world and her place in it? Of course, then the bigger and the more costly moment of this challenge comes when these spies show up in her home. 
And I don't know if you noticed this, but these are apparently some of the worst spies in the history of the world. Because the same night that they're there, it's figured out that that's exactly what they're there to do, spies. It's like you just picture them with like those plastic glasses and the nose and like the little mustache. Like they're not, espionage is not for them. It's probably why they're not named in the story because it's just embarrassing how fast it's figured out what they're there doing. This news reaches the king of Jericho right away. He sends people to apprehend the spies. And now Rahab really has to pick. Uh, will she commit treason against Jericho? Her home. And as far as we can tell, the only place that she's ever lived, the people that she's lived among her entire life, everything she's known. Or will she remain loyal to Jericho and thereby reject the rule and the reign of God? Life is, is complicated. Life is ambiguous. There's a lot of gray in life. In the midst of all that ambiguity and gray in life, it's helpful at times to see and state it this bluntly, that as human beings, you and I are always swearing allegiance to some ruler and committing treason against another. We're always swearing allegiance to some ruler and we're committing treason against another. That's what it means to be a worshiper. Uh, that's what it means to be a, a repenter, is turning away from something and turning towards something else. And whether we would use those kind of religious terms or not, we're always doing that. Most of us would prefer to think that there's the Swiss option, you know, a way to remain uh, perpetually neutral. But ultimately, there really is no such thing as neutrality. If you're familiar with this story, if you've ever studied the book of Joshua or anything like that, much is made of Rahab's deception here in this text. And whether or not that means ethically that it's okay to lie if like the ends justify the means of lying. A couple things really quickly on that. Um, number one, this is a descriptive text in scripture, not a prescriptive, meaning that it's describing what has played out historically among the people of God. We should always be slow and cautious to take a descriptive text and to apply moral and ethical standards in the present to that or draw moral and ethical uh, implications from it. Number two, though, and more importantly, the focus in this text of Rahab's lies is not the morality of it. The focus is how her allegiance has changed. So listen to the words she uses. As she lies to the king's men who come, what does she say? Verse four, I didn't know where they were from. And then verse five, I don't know where they went. But then what does she say just moments later in verse nine? I know that the Lord has given you this land. So her certainty, her loyalty, her allegiance has changed. That's the point, that's the emphasis of her deception, of her lies in this text. She's now uncertain and disloyal to her own people precisely because she's become certain that God is real and that he has given this land to the people of Israel. The specifics, no doubt, will be much different for us but we face a similar challenge to our allegiance whenever God reveals himself. And here's the question for each of us. When God makes himself known, are you willing to part with all that you've known for the promise of something truer and better? When God makes himself known, are you willing to part with all that you've known for the promise of something truer and better? And as I say that, let's not pretend even for a moment that that's an easy thing to do. Because as, as many of you know, personally, firsthand experience, it's incredibly costly to become a traitor to your former way of life, 
to become a, a traitor to all that you have known in your life before. At times, it costs you relationships. Uh, at times, it costs you money or reputation. It always costs you comfort and ease in this life. It always costs you some opportunity that you would rather take in that moment, but allegiance to God means you should not. Like Rahab, though, we cannot remain neutral forever. We have to make a choice about who we will follow and in turn who we will betray. And just as it is in the story of Rahab, the starting point is to consider what God has revealed about himself. Author and pastor named Tim Keller puts it this way, You begin with Christ not by adopting an ethic, nor by turning over a new leaf, nor even by joining a community. No, you begin by believing the report about what has happened in history. So for those of you who are here this morning, who aren't sure what you believe, and maybe specifically about the claims of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, you've been on the fence about that for years. You've tried to remain neutral probably with good intent. You're trying to respect as many people as possible. Uh, You're trying not to ruffle feathers. Advent presents you, it presents each of us, with a moment just like Rahab experienced when the king's men were on the way to her house. Advent is this audacious claim that God the Son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to dwell among us, ultimately uh, so that he might live a perfect life, and die a substitutionary death in our place, and then rise from the dead. So if that's where you are, if you're sitting on the fence of this, set aside for a moment the morality and ethics of Christianity. And set aside the difficult questions that you'll have to wrestle with, the obstacles that you'll have to face really for the rest of your life. Because if that's true, if God has really entered into human history in the person of Jesus, if that's true, the only fitting response for you is to change your allegiance to commit treason against the life that you have known and to at whatever cost may come proclaim your loyalty to the God who entered in. Like Rahab, and this is greatly encouraging for me and for many others I know, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be certain about everything. But for all that you don't know or all that you pretend to not know, like Rahab, do you know that God has entered into the world to redeem us from sin. Can you believe the report about what has happened in history? Let Advent be that challenge to your allegiance and lead you to swear loyalty to the one true God. Second, when the outside enters in, it enters not only with this challenge to our allegiance, it enters with a call to courageous faith. Call to courageous faith. When you think about the, the book of Joshua, the example of courageous faith that most quickly comes to mind is who? Joshua. It's not a trick question. I promise I'm not trying to fool you. It's Joshua. Uh, the book's named after him. Most of the book is all about Joshua leading the people into the promised land. But it's fascinating that immediately after the focus on Joshua in chapter 1, In chapter 2, the intention shifts completely away from Joshua and onto a Canaanite woman. So Joshua is only in chapter 2 at the very beginning and the very end. The rest of the story in chapter 2 is centered on Rahab. And in many ways, she becomes this counterpart to Joshua's courageous faith. There's a couple glaring differences, however, and they're helpful in understanding how God is at work in the world. 
Joshua is a righteous Israelite male. He's the obvious choice to lead Israel after Moses' death. Rahab, on the other hand, is a gender outsider, a moral outsider, a racial outsider. She's a female Canaanite prostitute. The two could not be more different from one another, and yet they are held up as the counterparts of courageous faith at the very beginning of this story of the Israelites entering into the promised land. So here's the point of that. Regardless of who you are, and regardless of how obvious or not obvious a choice or a candidate you might be, when the outside enters in, when God reveals himself, it will always come with a call to courageous faith. Joshua, as we see the narrative progress, is going to lead the people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Rahab is going to lead her Canaanite family out of Jericho, And ultimately, as we read later, to live among the people of Israel as a God-fearing, sojourning family. In addition to the book of Joshua, uh, Rahab is mentioned in in Scripture three other places. Uh, One of them you already know because of this series. She shows up in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. The other two references come in Hebrews chapter 11 and James chapter 2. I want to read them for you. They're going to be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith... Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then James chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also is faith apart, from, faith apart from works is dead. If you're familiar with scripture, you, you perhaps know this. Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. Uh, great examples of faith throughout the people of God, throughout the story of God's redemption. James chapter 2 is this famous passage in the Bible that talks about how faith without works is dead. Guess who shows up in both of those places? Rahab does. She's this example of both faith and works. So Rahab is a woman of faith. She hears this report about the God of Israel and she believes it's costly faith. It's treason against her own people. But hers is the clearest profession of faith in this text. Verse 11, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And perhaps you also noticed this as we read it. Her faith inspires and engenders more faith among the people of Israel. So it's through her report, it's through her help that the faith of the spies is strengthened. If you go back to the beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, God says to Joshua, I am giving you this land. By the end of chapter 2, in verse 24, the spies say to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And their faith, no doubt, will strengthen Joshua's faith, which in turn will strengthen the faith of all Israel as they proceed to cross the Jordan and take possession of this land. Furthermore, like all genuine faith, uh, Rahab's faith is inseparable from works, from courageous action. So she's welcomed the spies, she's hidden them, she's protected them, she's ensured their safe return back to Joshua. Her faith in the one true God is demonstrated by her willingness to put her own life on the line. And so as we look at her as an example to follow, as she's held up that way in Scripture, Where do you need to respond with more courage in your life? 
Where do you need to respond with more courage? Maybe it's the courage to hold a conviction that's not popular, uh, that's not culturally acceptable. Maybe it's the courage to love someone who's just really difficult for you to love. And like you're dreading it because in a couple weeks they're going to be at your house because it's Christmas and you feel a need to have them come to your house, but you're just a ton of anxiety about that. Where do you need more courage to love? Maybe it's the courage to forgive someone who's really hurt you and wounded you. Uh, Maybe it's the courage to ask for forgiveness to someone that you've really hurt and wounded. Whatever it might be, see from the example of Rahab that when God enters in, he enters in with a call to courageous faith. But even more than that, see this, that besides Rahab, there's only one other person that shows up in both Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2, held up as the example of both faith and works. Anybody know who that is? Abraham. Abraham, whose name also shows up in Matthew chapter 1 at the very top of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Because examples of faith and works in Scripture always point to Jesus. They always point to Jesus. And even more than being an example of courageous faith and courageous action, Rahab's life becomes this tiny snapshot of God's courageous action to redeem the world from the corruption and fracture of sin. Just like with Abraham, just like with Rahab, God's going to accomplish his redemptive work through flawed people, uh, people whose faith will waver, people whose moral judgment is completely off at times. And yet, God continues that work. And yet, God calls us, flawed people in our own right, to courageous faith, to believe that what we, what we have heard and to respond with both faith and works. So if you are a Christian, or if you become a Christian, the rest of your life will require a response of courageous faith. But at the end of the day, courageous faith is the only fitting response to the God who has entered in in the person of Jesus Christ. Third, finally, when the outside enters in, it enters in with the chance to become a delivered deliverer. I don't know if you had the same experience when you were listening to Joshua chapter 2. It's hard to tell in this chapter who is rescuing who. So on the one hand, Rahab is rescuing the spies from certain death. At the same time, the Israelites are rescuing Rahab and her family from the otherwise total destruction of the city. So it's not this one-directional, one-sided kind of rescue. And if your brain works a little bit like mine, and I apologize to you if it does, that's, that's a scary thought, it, it brings some interesting rhetorical questions and leaves them on the table. Like, if the spies didn't come, would Rahab have ever had the opportunity to be rescued? Would she ever be, have become part of Jesus' family? Or if Rahab didn't hide the spies so that they could return to Joshua, would, would Joshua and the Israelites ever really had the courage to proceed into the promised land? Or would they have just camped out on the other side of the Jordan? What the mutual rescue in Joshua chapter 2 shows us is that behind all of the human action in this story is the God of deliverance. Behind all the human rescue, behind all the human deliverance, is the God of deliverance, the God who delivers his people from death. And that God who, once he delivers his people, catches them up into his work of delivering other people. We become delivered deliverers or rescued rescuers. And perhaps you heard this as we read it. Did you hear the echoes 
of the Passover in this story. Generation earlier, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And God sets them free by bringing judgment on the Egyptians. As he did that, his judgment passed over the Israelites as the blood of a lamb was painted on their doorposts. So when the spies tell Rahab, hey, when Jericho falls, when this city falls, stay inside your house and put something blood-colored on the window, that's an echo of the Passover. That God is going to deliver his people out of judgment. And not only that, but that those he delivers will then become part of his ongoing deliverance of others. So when the outside entered in, Rahab believed and was delivered. And then from, this, from the family line of this gender outsider, racial outsider, moral outsider, comes the savior of the world. She's delivered from her former life as a pagan prostitute and is swept up into the family line of the deliverer, Jesus Christ. And generations later, as we're celebrating in this Advent season, Jesus will enter in from the outside and he will become the fulfillment of what that Passover promised. That there would be a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who sheds his blood so that God's judgment against sin might pass over. Jesus enters into the world as our deliverance. He's the one who saves us from the otherwise doomed, judged, condemnation Jericho uh, that is this world. And for so many people in our culture, both those who are Christians and those who are not, the primary perception of this lifestyle of following Jesus, it's all about rules, obligations, restrictions, things that inhibit joy, things that diminish experiencing what, you know, what we feel like is the, the most life has to offer. And no doubt, uh, there are obligations, there are commands, there are restrictions that are part of a faithful and consistent allegiance to God. But if that's all that you think this life is, you'll miss the beauty of what the story of God offers, that as God delivers you from sin and death, you become part of his ongoing work of deliverance in the world. If the Christian life for you has become rote and stale, if the Christian life for you has become boring or empty or joyless, that could happen for any number of a hundred different reasons. One of them, though, is that you're missing out on, what, on the offer that is held out to you to use your life as the means of the very deliverance of God in the world. And so this Advent, as we think about how God entered in to deliver us and use us as delivered deliverers, consider how God might work his deliverance through you. In your neighborhood, in this region, whether you're aware of this or not, there are people around you in all kinds of bondage to addictions, subjected to verbal or physical or sexual abuse, people in poverty, any number of, of things that enslave people. Beneath all of those things is also the spiritual bondage of sin. And this is the deliverance, this is the real core of the deliverance that we celebrate at Advent, that Jesus entered into this world of enslaved people just like you and me in order to set us free. And just as you have been delivered, you now have the privilege of using your life to invite other people into that very same deliverance. So this Advent season, who might you invite to believe the report about what has happened in history to put their trust in the life and death and resurrection of the deliverer, Jesus Christ? And I'll close with this. Because Jesus has delivered you 
from sin. Use your life to advance the very deliverance of God. Maybe you will see that in your lifetime in an incredibly visible, tangible way, and maybe you won't. But if your allegiance is with the God of heaven and earth, and if you respond to God's call with courageous faith, you can be sure that your life and your labors are not in vain, but like Rahab's, will be swept up into the very deliverance that God is bringing about in this world through our Savior, our Deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your deliverance of us. And thank you that we have pictures in Scripture of people who were outsiders that were brought into your kingdom and swept up into your work of redemption in the world. We are outsiders left to ourselves. We need your salvation. And we're grateful, Jesus, for how you have purchased that for us, how you entered into this world to rescue us from sin. We also want to use our lives as to continue that same kind of deliverance that you have brought in our own life. And we pray you would work that in us and through us. We pray even in these coming weeks of Advent that as we are reminded of the deliverance you've purchased for us, that we would seek to be a means of your deliverance in this world. Open our eyes to the spiritual bondage. Open our eyes to all the other forms of bondage that take place around us. Give us hearts of compassion for we were people who were enslaved apart from the grace of God. And help us, Jesus, to celebrate well the deliverance that you have brought as you entered into this world. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.